0: Well, welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Wayne Peterson for his teaching on the Book of Philippians. We might live a
1: brand new life and if we been in a dreadful. Our little church in uh, fertile Minnesota, it was called Hitterdahl named after Hitterdahl, Norway, so it was the Hitterdahl Lutheran Church, and um, I, I always sat in the black back pew with my friends, the Bakkens. and uh, I was hoping one of the Bakkans could be up here this week, but they had some health issues but couldn't come, and I actually, when the church closed, I bought the back pew. <laughs> And uh, we had it cut down, and it's in our uh, family area at our home. We have the back pew of Hitterdahl Church. But this tiny little church produced two pastors, not counting me. I I didn't get my cross at the front because I didn't become a pastor. Uh, But uh, one was Gib Lee, and Gib Lee attended LBI and uh, Concordia College Moorhead and Luther Seminary, and he was the bishop of the uh, north-central District of the ELCA. The other person that was ordained in our church was Orville Morn, and he wrote this book. Orville Morn grew up dirt, dirt poor. His father was an alcoholic. When my mom died, I was 19, my mom died, we had Orville Morn's mom, Jenny, come and be our housekeeper for a while. Orville Morn was a hard-working guy. Uh, a son of an alcoholic, and when he was ordained, I'll never forget it, he, he stood in the pulpit and gave his ordination address, and he wept <laughs> through the whole thing. He could hardly make it through his uh, sermon because he was so moved from what he came from to be ordained in the service of the Lord. It was unforgettable. And then to come here, I, we were in the library, and I saw this book that Orville wrote about the history no, it's called a Mount Carmel, The Mount Carmel Story, written and edited by Orville Morin. He's a great guy. God has used him mightily. Um, I said, you know, I have to be careful here. I know we're in Scandinavia country. We've got Norwegians and Swedes. And I used to tell s- Swedish jokes because I'm Norwegian, and always the Swedes were, got the bad end of that. But I had to stop because... People would get offended. You know, we talk about offenses here today and love covering offenses, but they'd get offended when I told these jokes. So I tried to look through, you know, history and the Bible and find out a people group that was no longer existed. So um, the Hittites are extinct. There are no longer Hittites. There were Hittites in the Old Testament, and they no longer exist so I started, instead of telling Norwegian-Swedish jokes, I told Hittite jokes. So uh, there were these two Hittites named Ole and Sven. <laughs> Just kidding. Actually, uh, I, I stole that from Ozzy Hoffman, Oswald Hoffman from the Lutheran Hour. He always told about you know, Oswald oh, Hoffman told these Hittite jokes. And, you know, talking about radio, we, uh, when I was at KTIS in Minneapolis, we carried the Psalm of Life uh, for a long, long time. And uh, so, you know, a lot of connections there. It's kind of fun. Well, let's look, look at the God's Word today. And we have to wrap up by 1130 because we've got a, some other paperwork to do at that time. But uh, Philipp, uh, Philippians 3.12 is where we start this morning. And uh, Holy Spirit, would you just illumine your word. May you descend upon our meeting, anoint our time, uh, give me the right words to say, keep me from goofing it up. May may you speak through me today to our hearts and minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. And uh, we're going to finish chapter 3 before the coffee break comes. And uh, you're going to make sure we get our coffee, right? Our fika. And, and then we'll go to chapter 4 and wrap up with chapter 4 and wrap up Philippians today. Paul says, um, and this is Paul saying, I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Because he's previously sharing all these glorious things. He wants to die with Christ and experience the resurrection and all that kind of stuff. But he says... I haven't achieved it, uh, I haven't arrived uh, uh, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. You know, there's, uh, there's kind of a myth out there that Christians have to be perfect. I think especially guys think that we have to, you know, have this macho imic- image and we've, we've got our act all together. To, it's, it's hard for us guys sometimes to admit mistakes <laughs> or to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I say I'm sorry every morning to Willie, and she's, what for? I said, well, I know I'm going to do something today that's going <laughs> to offend you, so you know, might as well get it over with earlier in the day. But Paul, here's, here's the interesting thing about Paul. Paul progressed in his move towards perfection. Early in his career he described himself as the least of the apostles. Now, that sounds pretty humble, right? He's the least of the apostles. But later, even more humble, he calls himself the least among all men. Not just the least of the apostle, the least of all men. And finally, at the end of his life, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. <laughs> that was Paul's move towards maturity and perfection from the least of the apostles to the chief of sinners. The closer we come to God, the more we know our inadequacy. uh, Amos Dirud was my professor. He was dean of the Free Lutheran Seminary. And he said, the closer we get to a holy God, the more the light shines on our sinful heart and we realize what sinners we are, the closer we get to God. We are not golden vessels. We are clay pots. (laughs) Some of us are crackpots, but we're not perfect. And that's the glory of the good news. Not that we're perfect. We're just ordinary, everyday sinners that God can use in extraordinary ways. We're not perfect, but God is. So when people around look at the church and say, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. We're not perfect, but we're forgiven. That's the gospel. We're not perfect, just forgiven. There are three states of perfection. I talked about that on Tuesday. The first stage is justification, where Christ's righteousness is The theological word imputed. Christ's righteousness is transferred to us when we receive him, the perfect life that we can't live. He lived. And then sanctification. That's the growth and maturity where we become more like Jesus. And uh, we studied Philippians 1.9 on the first day that said Christ will bring to completion. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then on the day of Jesus Christ, it's glorification, that we will be like Christ. We will see him as he is. Justification, sanctification, glorification when Christ comes back. Uh, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, and as a young Christian, I landed on this verse time and time again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, okay, as a young boy, I said, okay, God, I confess my sins. He can be dependent upon to forgive us our sins. Would Jesus lie to us? No. If we can set fast our sins, he'll forgive our sins. But not only forgive, but cleanse. He will cleanse us. He will forgive us, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most people have it backwards. Uh, they, they would uh, say that the way uh, we have to live a righteous life to please God. No, it's backwards. Jesus has made us pleasing to God, and as a result, we try to live righteously. Let me say that again. People think that we live a righteous life to please God. No. Jesus made us pleasing to God, and the result is we seek to live righteously. We have the right standing with God that motivates us to live a righteous life. Paul says, I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. No, dear brothers, I've not achieved it yet. The word is completion. I've not completed it yet. Only Christ can do that. Verse 13. I focus on one thing. I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Um, professional, I'm, I'm an amateur runner, uh, but the professional runners know that you focus on the finish line. You don't look back to see who's catching up with you. You don't look alongside to see who's running with you. You're straight ahead. And if you turn, you might stumble. You might lose your pace. You keep focusing forward. I do not look back. Looking at the finish line instead, forgetting the past and looking to what lies ahead. I'd like Willie to come up. Willie has an amazing story. Uh, Growing up in a good Lutheran church. Well, I'll let her tell the story. Come on up here, dear, and tell your story because it relates. Oh, yeah, give her that sanitized mic. Because Willie's life has been sanitized by the Holy Spirit, tell your story, dear. Amen. um, Nice and close.
0: I just want to. There we go. I just want to say that um, we have had such a good time here this week, and and uh, I came here knowing uh, what Mount Carmel meant to Wayne and his walk in faith, and uh, it's just been pure joy to to be here and to get to know a lot of you and. Um, uh, so thank you for that gift of your friendship and the gift of the time that we've had here. So as Wayne started to say, I grew up in Colorado, and uh, I was uh, my parents were poor farmers. Uh, we, my parents, both had an eighth-grade education, and we didn't have much of anything that money could buy, but. I felt very loved. I had so many things that money can't buy, and I'm so grateful for that. I had a very healthy perspective of our Heavenly Father because my earthly father um, was a very strong, quiet, gentle Christian man. So um, that that is my foundation. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And uh, my parents are deceased now, but uh, but that's a little bit of my history. And as you know, we still live in Colorado. I've lived everywhere from Seattle to Miami and many places in between, but uh, it's good to to live with Wayne uh, back home in Colorado. So I grew up in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. My parents were strong Germans, and uh, my, my father was sort of a, a mixed bag, but my mom was, uh, was 100% German. So that was my background. Uh, I got baptized as an infant, spent years in catechism classes, got confirmed, and, and uh, did all that. When I was a junior in high school, we moved to Phoenix. My dad um, decided he wanted to, to uh, get out of the farm country and and get into the city, and and uh, so we moved to Phoenix, and I became very immersed in Walther League, which was the Missouri Synod youth group, and and all of that. When I graduated from high school, I had a longing to go see the world. I just I wanted to kind of get out of my little my, my little nest and go see the world. And the only way I knew to do that was to apply for a job to be a flight attendant because I'd never been on an airplane, never gone anywhere. Our family uh, vacations were always camping um, because that's what we could afford. So um, I I went out to the Phoenix airport and applied to, to Delta Airlines to be a flight attendant. My first flight ever was to fly to Atlanta um, on Delta's dime to interview um, as a flight attendant and um, I, I was accepted and so the day after I turned 20 years old I went to flight attendant school and and I uh, I felt that the whole world opened up to me then. I was traveling, every chance I got I used some of my passes and went to Europe and went all over the country and had the privilege of of, uh, bringing my mom and dad to Europe and let my dad tour the areas that he had served in World War II and we were in Italy and Pompeii and all those places, and um, that's one of my sweetest, greatest memories with my parents, was to be able to give something back to them through um, uh, the passes that I was able to receive as a flight attendant. During that time, though, I started to walk away from my Christian faith. I, uh, the world was sort of my oyster, and and uh, although I had a firm, firm foundation, I, I wasn't living it out in, in uh, my personal life and, or even my professional life. When I was 23 years old, I ended up getting married to uh, one of my fellow flight attendants' brothers. And um, it wasn't a marriage founded in my faith at all. And five years later, uh, for various reasons I don't know, need to get into, uh, we were divorced. So I found myself in my late 20s and by this time I had actually uh, left uh, left being a flight attendant and went back to school and became a dental hygienist. I did that when I was married so um, so I found myself in my late 20s. Um, divorced. I had had always grown up with the idea that I would live in the house with the white picket fence and have the 2.5 kids and do all the things that um, live out the lifestyle that I grew up with. And so I found myself pretty broken in my late 20s. Divorced, Um, uh, life was a little bit of a mess. And so I did the mature thing and made it a bigger mess. I, um, um, As my professional life, I, I, I did have my degree in dental hygiene, but I couldn't stand cleaning people's teeth. It's a really gross profession, actually. <laughs> so, so I decided, what could I do um, to use my dental background and do something more fun? And um, by the grace of God alone, I got involved with a, a dental company that was ended up being bought out by Colgate and um, quickly rose to a national level professionally. I was um, in charge of some professional programs at the Colgate and uh, traveling over the world and speaking. And then I ended up... Uh, uh, with Sonicare. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Sonic toothbrush. Um, but I uh, was hired by them as their professional relations manager. And um, I appeared on QVC doing all their, uh, I, I appeared as a dental expert on QVC and, and uh, promoted Sonicare and was in infomercials. I did things that only God could have orchestrated. Here I was, a poor little kid from Colorado. I ended up on national stage and almost an inter- really an international stage in my professional life. So, so um, God opened doors for me that only he could. And on some level, I knew that. Um, but I wasn't acknowledging God through any of this. And I can tell you that as my professional life was achieving heights that I could have never imagined, my personal life was pretty much a mess. I was in and out of personal relationships. Uh, I certainly was not honoring God with the way that I was living. And uh, uh, after many years of that, God kept pursuing me, and I knew he was pursuing me, but I wanted God at a distance because I felt like if I brought him close, I'd have to give up all of these things that were going on in my professional life, which were my identity at that time. And and so um, that was hard for me to do. Eventually, though, God kept saying, you're coming back, Willie. You are coming back to me. And I, um, I decided in order— To answer God's call to come back to him, I was going to have to give up a lot of things in my professional life because it just wasn't conducive. I was working 24-7 on airplanes all the time, and I needed more stability in my personal life to respond to God wooing me back. So I was at a dental convention giving a a lecture to a group of dentists um, who have zero energy, and I have a lot of energy, and they always wanted my energy, so I always got job offers from dentists when I was out teaching uh, these continuing education courses. And this dentist came up to me, um, obviously having no idea what I was going through in my spiritual challenge and uh, in my personal life, but he said, said, Willie, he said, if you ever want to get out of this corporate rat race... And live in Aspen, Colorado. I have a practice there, and I would like you to come be in my practice in, in Aspen, Colorado. He had no idea I was born and raised in Colorado in the mountains for my first love. So my first question to him was, "Is John Denver one of your patients?" Now, some of y'all are probably familiar with who John Denver was, but I was a big fan of his music. And the dentist said, "Actually." He is one of my patients. And I said, well, if you can guarantee me that he will be my patient, because there were going to be two hygienists in the practice, I said, I'll, um, I, I really want to seriously consider doing that. So uh, fast forward six months, and I found myself, sorry, I thought I turned off. Um, uh, I I found myself in Aspen Colorado sitting in front of this dentist and and I said to him I said you know you really don't want to bring me to Aspen Colorado Uh, I haven't had a dental instrument in my hand for 20 years and I'll probably hurt your patients I probably won't be helping them and he looked at me and he said Willie you have the right spirit that I can't buy I can teach you your clinical skills. I can reteach you. I want you in my practice. So I said goodbye to the corporate world and um, moved to Aspen, Colorado, not knowing anyone and um, just deciding I wanted to just immerse myself in getting close to God. So in this very sort of pagan place of Aspen, Aspen, Colorado, I found a really strong faith-based church. Um, Our pastor was Charles Stanley's former youth pastor, and um, I sat under his teaching, and I was I committed to God that I would walk with Him again, and that I and I got rebaptized in the river in the summer because it's cold <laughs> in the rivers of Colorado. We were living at eight thousand feet, and um, so I got rebaptized. I I developed a, a a circle of friends around me that could be my accountability partners, and that was very critical to me and important to me. So I had these. Wonderful, strong women friends um, that we met with uh, continually. We I hiked with them, and to this day, they're some of my best friends. During the course of coming back to Christ, I, um, you know, I, I started praying, and I said, it, it, by this time, I'd been single for many years, and I, I prayed to God that if it was ever His will, um, I would be. I would love. To get into a Christian marriage again, and um, uh, and I prayed that continually. But I also prayed that if God wanted me to remain single, He would show me that clearly, and that He would um, uh, that He would. Fulfill my heart in my singleness, and I can tell you very clearly that He did that. I, um, I, it was uh, that was those were amazing years in my life where I think I needed to be single to grow deeper in my walk with the Lord and to to have um, a, a lot of alone time with God and um, and really really um reach into my soul and study God's word and and live out the life that he asked me to live. So I was in Aspen probably well I was I was in Aspen 14 years and through that time my faith grew stronger my walk with the Lord was was deeper than I could ever imagine. I f- finally really understood what a personal relationship with Christ was during that time. After 14 years, I felt God calling me away that it was time to get into a, a, a bigger environment and and uh, God used my my personal circumstances to um, to kind of pull me out of Aspen and get me to Colorado Springs and that's you know it's it's that that's another long story. I'm gonna, I'm giving the executive summary of my <laughs> of my of my uh, testimony because because of time constraints. But anyway, After 14 years in Aspen, I left and um, bought a home in Colorado Springs, and God led me to a wonderful faith-based church, Woodman Valley Chapel, which Wayne and I belong to this day. And God started breaking my heart for missions and and to use—he um, wanted to use me, I felt, to— to he wanted to break my heart for things that broke his heart. So in Woodman Valley Chapel, there were a lot of mission trips that were going out. And meanwhile, professionally, I needed to figure out how I was going to support myself in Colorado Springs. And I got my real estate license and started practicing real estate. In a time where real estate wasn't real, um, it wasn't a real strong market. But God blessed my business in ways that only He could. So I ended up using my real estate business to fund my desire to go on mission trips. In 2008, I went to Tanzania, Africa, and um, helped build a coalition with our church and other organizations um, to to treat HIV in Africa and and. I felt more contentment and joy and accomplishment than anything I had ever accomplished professionally in my life, and I knew that I was finally home, following God's desires that he put in my heart um, for global missions, and, and particularly in Africa. Two years later, I um, our, ch- our church went was going to go on a trip to Ghana, Africa. So now this is 2010, and I've been single over 20 years at this point. And that dream, although it was still a dream and still a prayer, my dream to maybe eventually be in a strong marriage, uh, my desire was still there, but my life was also full. So, God in His infinite mercy, in 2010, um, I joined a, a mission team to go to Africa. And as you've heard Wayne say, um, Wayne at that time was uh, with HCJB Global. And that was the organization that our church partnered with to go to Ghana, Africa. And so I was in Africa for, again for three weeks in 2010. And I met Wayne and Norma, his wife, um, in Africa. and. I didn't think a thing about it. I mean, he was just part of our our service there. And in fact, later I said to somebody, he seemed like a nice guy, but he also seemed a little buttoned up and (laughs) he was in a very official role there and uh, didn't think a thing about it. After we got back from Africa, um, my path crossed with Wayne and Norma several times through church functions. We didn't go to the same church, but um, but there were several functions that we attended together. And then Wayne and Norma would come to some of the open houses I was having in my real estate business when I was in their area. So we weren't close friends, but we were certainly acquaintances. I was a financial supporter of HCJB, HCJB and... Um, A couple of years later, I got word that Norma was suffering from ovarian cancer. And uh, I was on a prayer team praying fervently that God would heal her. She was such a beautiful woman. And it was, this makes me teary. It was such an honor to know Wayne's Wayne's first wife and to pray for her that God would grant her healing. So during this time in 2000. And 13, and into early 2014, I'm praying fervently for Norma for Norma to survive cancer. Meanwhile, at that identical time, I received a cancer diagnosis, and was and was going to have to go through surgery, chemo, and radiation. So, the HCJB Global Team started a prayer chain for me. So I'm praying for Norma to survive cancer, and I have all these people from HCJB praying for me to survive cancer. And um, in God's provision, as as Wayne likes to say uh, many times, Norma and I both survived cancer. We're just in different geographic locations now. In 2014, um, Norma lost her battle with cancer. Um, I was unable to attend that service because I was under—I was in a hospital undergoing treatment myself. So um, uh, fast forward six months later, and I am, by the way, I'm happy to report that I am over five years out now from cancer and i am 100 percent cancer free there's not a cancer cell in my body that can be detected and i praise god for that um sorry it's hard to go through all this without getting a little emotional so um so six months later there's going to be a fundraiser for um hcjb which is now called reach Beyond. they went through a name change they're called reach beyond And I got an invitation to go to this fundraiser, and I was unable to attend because of a a, a trip I already had planned. And Wayne sent me an email when I declined the invitation uh, for the fundraiser, and he said, you know, let's go for a coffee sometime um, when you return for your trip. So uh, fast forward again a few months later, and eventually we go out for coffee, and We start a conversation, and I said to Wayne, I said, Wayne, how do you process losing your spouse of 45 years? How do you begin to walk through that? And Wayne turned to, and so we talk about that, and we cried, and we prayed together. And Wayne turned to me, and mind you, I am almost bald from my chemo treatments. They're not, um, I'm out of treatment at that point, but still uh, suffering a lot of the consequences of treatment. And Wayne turned to me, and he said, Willie, as a single woman, and I don't have children, I my, my parents are deceased at that point, how did you go through your cancer journey by yourself without family? And um, I, I shared with Wayne that even though I was single, my relationship with the Lord through that trial— got closer and stronger than I ever, ever dreamed could happen. And I shared with Wayne at that moment what I had never shared with anyone else, um, that God had taught me through my cancer treatments, and that is this. When I was on the other side of those cancer treatments, God told me very clearly, he said, Willie, I know the desire of your heart is to, to someday get into a Christian marriage and um and i want that for you too but you're not ready to receive it because you have never forgiven yourself for those years that you wandered in the wilderness in your personal life and the way you dishonored me i have forgiven you as far as the east is from the west but it is clear that you have never forgiven yourself and the Lord allowed these cancer treatments. Without getting specific during my treatments, they had to s- destroy everything from my waist down to get rid of cancer in me. And in that process, God told me, I, I am going to allow this trial with, for you so that I will physically take away the history that you cannot let go of. And you are my child, and I'm going to allow this trial so and allow these, the, the chemo and the radiation so you can finally physically even see yourself the way I see you. You are a redeemed woman of God. And so I told Wayne this story, and I turned to him, and I said, you know, through these cancer treatments, I actually left out the part about the marriage thing because that seemed a little inappropriate. But, um, but I said, the way I got through chemo and radiation was because God walked with me and He talked with me and He showed me the reason for these trials, and um, and that actually now I can really say I'm a born again virgin, <laughs> because I am. God took it all away, and all those sins that I couldn't let go of, um, God physically took away. So Wayne and I spent those four hours of our first coffee that wasn't really a date going so deep. And we cried together. We laughed together. We prayed together. And I got in my car to drive home that day, and I thanked God for introducing me to my husband. I knew that someday we would marry. I didn't know how that would happen. I didn't know, um, but, but, but I knew deep in my heart that that was God's dream. Um, for me, and uh, and men, you know, take they're a little behind us, women. So it took Wayne about a week to kind of figure that out. But <laughs> but but we both knew very early on um, that that was going to be um, that was going to be God's dream for us. And so uh, a year after that, Wayne and I were married. And God is so big that not only did I pray for a godly husband, God also allowed me to be in full time ministry with Wayne, which was always always my dream. And so when you pray to God, you know, the, the dreams that we ask him for are so um, limited by our human dreams. And um, God is so much bigger than that. So so uh, that's Wayne and I's story and my story. Thank you for allowing me to share it with you.
1: Thank you. you, can, you can take that. Yeah. It reminds me, Reminds me of Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. Uh, Willie is a tremendous trophy of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. He has removed her sins as far as the east is from the west. He's even taken away the physical vestiges of a life apart from God and restored, forgiven her, restored her, remade her. We are all new creatures in Christ. Whether we've lived the life of sin or just been good religious people, we all need to be forgiven. When we were at Mount Carmel back in the days, we sang a song. It's not very well known, but it's called, I Look Not Back. I look not back. God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sinning, the regrets. I leave them all with him who blots the record and graciously forgives them and forgets. I look not back, God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sinning, the regrets. I leave them all with him who blots the record, and graciously forgives and then forgets. Paul did that. God forgave his sin of killing Christians, imprisoning Christians. So Paul says, I keep pressing forward. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which Christ Jesus is calling us to, running straight ahead. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the uh, uh, Olympic skier from Stillwater, Minnesota. Her name is Jessie Diggins. She and her partner won the first American gold medal in, in uh, cross-country skiing. And uh, most women as cross-country skiers reached their peak in their early 30s. And she was young. I mean, she was in her early 20s. But uh, she was identified and the, um, the, the Olympic people says, okay, Jesse, you and your parents have to decide you're gonna focus on this. You're not gonna be able to do trips, you're not gonna be able to do, uh, participate in high school sports, you're gonna be focused. You gotta have one focus and that's on cross-country skiing. Um, a friend of ours that uh, runs Slumberland Furniture Stores, Ken Larson, they have sponsored her in the Olympics. And maybe you've seen videos of her crossing the finish line. And you know how these skiers, when they're done, they just collapse on the floor. They just drop to the floor. And Ken Larson asked Jesse, is that just drama? That, you know, a celebration that you just fall down and collapse? And she said, no, when you finish the race, you're absolutely, totally spent. You have nothing left even to stand up. You give your all. If you have something left at the end of the race, you haven't given your all. So you're trained to give your all in that final push. So when you cross the finish line, you're done. You're spent. You have zero energy level. And you're laying on the ground just totally exhausted. What a picture of the Christian life that we're so focused on the finish line, so focused on giving all to the Lord, pressing on, as Paul says, uh, pressing on, straining to the end. You know how these skiers and these runners turned it on at the very, very end, giving their all to cross the finish line so that at the end they have nothing left. What about a picture of us crossing the finish line when we, when, uh, we finish this life or when Jesus comes that we've given our all, nothing left. Um, I, I mentioned the other day uh, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, Eric Little story. It's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, Eric Little was a man of integrity. Uh, he was scheduled to run the 100-meter race for Britain in the 1924 Olympics. If you remember the story, when the schedule came out, His trainer told him the first heats of the 100-meter race are on Sunday, July 6th. Eric paused, you remember from the movie, and then he said, well, then I'm not running. If I run a race that honors me or other men, I'm not remembering God's Sabbath. And that seems a a little too legalistic to us today. But Eric says, if I start ignoring one of God's commands, I may as well ignore all of them. And Because I can't do that, I love God too much, I'm not going to run. Well, there was a lot of pressure from the officials, from the Scottish authorities, from the British authorities. But he decided to run the 220 and the 440 meter instead, not his best distance. So there he is at the starting line for the 220, the 440. The gun sounded, and they were off. And he ran the 220 in record uh, time. Too fast, his trainer thought. He, you know, he gave too much at the beginning of the race. You save your energy towards the end. Trainer was stop stop watching him. He ran too fast. In the final stretch, Eric was in the lead. And if you see the movie, he, he ran, his arms flailing and his head head back, and uh, his knees kind of like windmills going. He didn't have the characteristic smooth-running style. But um, he saw the finish tape in sight. He finished five meters ahead of his nearest rival. His time was 47.6 seconds, a world record. And he brought home the first gold medal won by a Scotsman. Eric said, I run the first 200 meters as hard as I can. And then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run even harder. Eric Little said, I believe God made me with a purpose. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Back in Scotland, Eric was famous, and he said, I compare faith to running a race. It's hard. It requires concentration and energy of soul. I have no formula for winning the race. Everyone runs his own way. Where does the power come from to see this race to the end? From within. If you commit yourself to the love of Christ, that is how you run a straight race. Isn't that a good picture of the Christian race? the race that Paul talks about. Well, Eric actually turned his uh, back on being a national hero, he went back to China as a missionary. He had to learn Chinese all over again. Back in China, he continued teaching. It was a terrible time. The Japanese soldiers were invading China. The drought brought famine and desperation, and Eric was everywhere doing what he could for people, feeding them, helping them. And uh, he actually died of a terrible disease about a month before the war ended and the prisoners were released. Let me give you a visual picture you can think of next time you get in the car to drive. The windshield is much bigger than the rear-view mirror, which tells us that we're to look through the windshield more than the rear-view mirror. There's a reason that that little uh, backup camera on your uh, dashboard doesn't operate when you're in drive. Because you're supposed to be looking forward, not where you've been. Focus forward. Look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. Keep your eye on the prize. That uh, song that I just tried to sing, I used to be a good singer, but it's, uh, the final verse is, But I look up into the face of Jesus, For there my heart is blessed, my fears are stilled, and there is love and light and life and gladness and perfect peace and every hope fulfilled. Not looking back, looking up into the face of Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree at some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. You know, there's a lot lot of different theologies. There's Baptist, there's Lutheran, there's Catholic, there's evangelical, there's pietism, there's Pentecostal. And uh, there's a lot of things out there. But spiritual maturity is to focus on the basics. Paul says if you disagree, ask God to show you what's right. Jesus said, if you know me, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Ask God to show you the truth. It's God's job to reveal the truth. John Wesley said this about this theological mess we have. uh, John Wesley, the, the revivalist from the 18th century in England, he said, "...in things essential, unity." Things like the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the atonement, the resurrection of Christ... Things that some of our people are denying today. <laughs> An old Finnish friend of mine, Pastor Herb Franz. His father was a strong, stalwart Finnish layman, and once there was a preacher in, in the pulpit that said the miracles did not really happen, they were just stories. And Herb Franz's father stood up in the congregation, interrupted the preacher, he says... Those are not stories, those are miracles. We need to stand firm on the faith that God is a God of miracles. God is the God of the resurrection. God, Jesus is the Son of God. God's Word is inspired and true in every aspect. We need to hold on to those truths. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. We may disagree on prophecy, We may disagree on creation. We may disagree on baptism and Lord's Supper. Those things are important, but probably not essential to salvation. In those matters, liberty. In things, essential unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. To be tolerant. Let's focus on the 90% we agree on and not on the 10% we disagree on. Um, listen to the Holy Spirit listen to his voice we learn very little when we're talking that's why it's been so good to be here at Mount Carmel as they say in Israel (laughs) Uh, that we have a chance to get away and sit by the lake and listen for the voice of God God gave us two ears and one mouth saying that we probably need to listen twice as much as we talk be teachable listen and learn I love this verse from Isaiah 30. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, you will hear a voice behind you. Like we sang that goodbye song a moment ago, that God's voice would follow us. God will give you wisdom if you ask for it. James chapter 1. Uh, Psalm says, Be still. And know that I am God. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. The Philippians had to live up to their uh, pride in being Roman citizens. We are to live up to what we have attained in Christ. Hold true. Don't slip. Don't go backwards. Finish well. I talked about that button the other day, P-B-P-W-M-G-I-F-W-M-Y. Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. We should strive to be better. He that began the good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The mark of Christian maturity is not overconfidence, but agreeableness, teachableness, and continued progress. Are we... Are you reflecting on God's grace and love and mercy by the way you're living, the way you're treating other people, the way you do business? Does our life live up to the name that we carry? Uh, I mentioned that Philip of Macedon was the uh, founder of Philippi, and uh, he was the father of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was one that conquered the world, and he wept because he had no more worlds to conquer. But in his uh, army, there was a young man named Alexander, and he was brought before Alexander the Great because he had uh, retreated in a battle, he had held back, he had cowarded and left the battle and uh, in fear, and he was brought before Alexander the Great. Alexander looks at this young Alexander and says, son, what is your name? And the boy said, Alexander, sir. What is your name? It's, it's Alexander, sir. Son, what is your name? It's Alexander. Alexander, live up to your name or change your name. Christian, live up to your name or change your name. Verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Citizenship was a big deal in the time of of Rome. And we are citizens. Our names are registered in heaven. They're written in heaven's book of life. The list of heaven's citizens are written there. Is your name in that book of life? Christ is here, there in heaven, but his reappearing is near. Heaven is where Christ is, and we will be there someday, according to verse 20. We are eagerly ret- waiting for him to return as our Savior. And verse 21, here's a big deal, and, and then we're going to break for coffee. I see it's out there. Um, Here's a big deal. He will transform. I love this verse. He will transform our weak mortal bodies into his glorious resurrection of the body. I've talked to a number of you today. Some of you have a fixed hip. Some of you are struggling with lung cancer. Some of you are struggling with very kinds of diseases, seizures. You're under medication for these things. As we get older and w- older, <laughs> my, uh, my mother-in-law used to say in her 80s, all we do anymore is visit the doctor and go to funerals. It seems like that's part of this season of our life. But that's not the end. Someday, he will transform our mortal bodies into his resurrection body. To really get into this, I just want to quickly have us go over to 1 Corinthians 15. Take your Bibles and uh, go over to 1 Corinthians 15, because I think this is so important. And uh, these verses became very real to me when uh, Norma died. And uh, Ken, I know you can relate to this. We've talked about this this whole thing. Anyone that's lost a a loved one, these words are tremendously encouraging, and I, I share them often. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is a great, great passage. Starting with verse 25. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say that all things... Uh, God has put all things under his authority. And then go on to say here in um, verse 29, if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? That's a, that's a, a hard passage to explain. But apparently they did memorials for uh, loved ones that had passed away when they baptized people. And why should we risk our lives hour after hour uh, with all of this stuff? Let's go to verse th- uh, 35. Someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will we have? Okay, we're in first, I confused you a little bit, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. What a foolish question. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And What you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it a new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory where the moon and stars have another kind and even the stars differ from each other. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Here he gets into it. Our earthly bodies are planted into the ground when we die. But we'll be raised forever to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness. They'll be raised in strength they are buried as natural human bodies but they will be raised as spiritual bodies just as there are natural bodies there are also spiritual bodies as well and then let's go on over to second corinthians 4 there's so much here we could we could raise read about here second corinthians chapter 4 i hope i got the verses right here this time Starting with verse uh, 14, we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. As God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be a great thanksgiving and God will receive the glory. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that far outweighs them all and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now are stuff, right? Our stuff that we heard about. (laughs) We have to have storage places for all our stuff. The things we see now will soon be gone anyway, but the things we cannot see are forever. And then chapter 5, we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we're going to leave these earth suits someday. These are just temporary earth suits that we're wearing. We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on the heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Hey, when we go to heaven, we're not going to be floating around uh, as a disembodied spirit playing on harps forever. We're going to have real heavenly because we're going to be like Christ's resurrection body. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But that's not what we want uh, when we die. When we die, we get rid of these bodies that clothe us. We want to put on new bodies so this dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. So, verse uh, 6, we're always confident, even though that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. Uh, Verse 8, yet we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. These passages in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and following, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 really give us a picture. Those who have died are with God in heaven. Willie said, Norma survived cancer. She's just in a different location. We will get new bodies at the resurrection like Christ's body, redesigned and adapted for heaven. And God will bring all things under his control. Everything will be fixed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Old things are passed away. All things will become new. No more cancer, no more divorce, no more evil, no more crying, because God will wipe away all tears from our eyes, and we will be forever in God's presence. I don't know what, you know, we don't have a, God uses the worst possible language to describe hell. To me, hell, whatever the extra punishment is, is eternal separation from God without ever having a chance to be in God's presence again. The glory of heaven will be, you know, the streets of gold. Uh, My friend says the side streets will be dark chocolate, but whatever they are, whatever it is, the glory of heaven is we're going to be in the very presence of Jesus forever. That's enough for me. I don't care what the streets are and what the gates are. Uh, I don't know what the mansion over the hilltop is going to be. But to be with Jesus, to see his face, to be worshiping at his throne. And we're all going to be given jobs to do. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have job assignments in heaven. I can't wait to see what that is. But it'll be fun because there won't be any labor unions. There won't be any strikes. There won't be a shortage of money that we have to worry about like running a Bible camp. But we're going to be given jobs in God's perfect heaven. And it's going to be cosmic, I think we're going to be able to move our bodies from here to Mars or pattern or another galaxy because we'll be transportable just like Jesus was. I can't wait. So when we realize how great heaven is and how wonderful our bodies are going to be, why hang on to this life? This life is full of trouble and sorrow and sickness and disappointment and strife and evil. And heaven's going to be the perfect place that God is preparing for us even today. Wow. That's a story worth telling, isn't it? Story worth telling others. Okay, we're going to take a coffee break. We're going to make it, uh, uh, um, and we'll gather, we'll make it 20 minutes at 11 o'clock. Come back in here. We'll go to the Philippians 4 and finish up. And also, I want to introduce you to another friend of mine that's going to say a few words uh, at at our next. But we break now for Fika, for coffee break. Uh, Tim, any news? Any announcements? Okay, verse go.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another session from Wayne Peterson. In the meantime, please consider joining us in person at Mount Carmel for our new Lakeside Bible Initiative or one of our new Family Camp Recharges. More information can be found at www.mountcarmelministries.com.